from training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 80. We're back after a one-week hiatus from the show. Last week, we had a big product launch for our new Medicine Ball Masterclass. Uh, that's something I definitely encourage you to check out if you missed it last week when it debuted. It's at www.cressymedball.com. That's a two-hour course that I delivered in conjunction with Athletes Acceleration, and I think there's lots of really good stuff in there for folks that train rotational sport athletes. Also, a lot of really good stuff that um, coaches can use on the field with their players even if they don't have access to a weight room, you can take some med balls out and work against the side of a dugout and really get a lot of great benefits. With that said, today's episode is really gonna dig into a topic that I think is heavily controversial in the baseball world. Um, so we're gonna take a hopefully unbiased perspective on this as we attack whether or not you should bench press as a pitcher. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients to support your body's nutritional needs across five critical areas. Energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. I'm an avid user of Athletic Greens myself in spite of the fact that I tend to be a supplement minimalist. To me, this is a product that is much more like whole food nutritional insurance as opposed to a true supplement. The ingredients have been carefully selected at the highest quality, most natural source. You get essential vitamins and minerals, digestive enzymes, prebiotics, probiotics, and that's a the zero compromise approach from the company. It's plant-based, sourced from whole foods at the highest quality, so you won't find harmful chemicals, artificial colors or flavors, preservatives or added sugar. Um, really, it's perfect for folks who are gluten and dairy free, paleo, keto, vegan friendly, um, great for people who are intermittent fasting, all that fun stuff. Um, personally, I love it for, for obviously our athletes who don't get enough nutritional uh, benefits from fruits and vegetables because they don't eat enough. So it's a way to kind of plug in holes in diets. But also, I really like it for our college and professional athletes who may have complex travel schedules where quality food options aren't always at hand. Um, on a personal level, I'm a husband, father of three, and an entrepreneur. Um, we split our time between two states, and, and I'm also still an avid lifter. Um, so life is inherently crazy, and it can be stressful, and sleep deprivation is definitely something that we encounter. So I rely on Athletic Greens uh, for part of my immune support and believe firmly that it's, it's made a big difference in keeping me healthy in spite of how crazy our lifestyle is. Um, they've got a great offer in place. If you head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, They'll get you 20 free travel packets with your purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you can claim your special offer. Okay, everybody, it is time to open a big can of worms with today's podcast, Should Pitchers Bench Press? To start, let me say that I have to overcome a big-time confirmation bias as we attack this subject, as my personal lifting background is in powerlifting. So I have a dog in the fight, so to speak. Um, the bench press is sacred, and many coaches with powerlifting influences default to it um, being in every program that they write. So it's taken me time to get away from that perspective over the course of my career. And if you look back to what I did with baseball programs, probably circa 2007 to 2010, 
I didn't get away with bench pressing. I just said, hey, we're gonna do floor presses. We're gonna do dumbbell bench presses. We're gonna use the multi-purpose bar or the football bar, or whatever you wanna call it. Um, so we're still gonna bench press. We're just gonna change the positioning. And as I look back, um, you know, I think there were some flaws in this methodology. So I'm gonna self-criticize as we work our way through this and realize how much better our programs have gotten as we change things up. So the first thing I think you have to realize is that when you're training any client for any endeavor, you really have to evaluate not only the effectiveness of an exercise, but also the safety of that exercise and the potential carryover to the functional demands of that individual sport. Right? That's true whether you're dealing with a gymnast, a basketball player, tennis player, baseball player, you name it. You have to understand the functional demands of our sport. And while that's a, another big can of worms, I think we have a lot of people who are coaching baseball players who don't fundamentally understand how baseball players move, the etiology of injuries, and the challenges they face when they're on their field. Um, we need to continue with this discussion nonetheless. So traditionally, the argument against bench pressing has been more on the safety side of things. And when we're talking about injury risk, I think we need to look at both acute injuries, do you get hurt while doing the exercise, or the potential for chronic injuries, right? So as an example of that, I'm not a distance runner, right? I'm not well equipped for, to go out and log miles and miles and miles. So if I go out and I run 10 miles today after not really preparing for it at all, I might show back up to my house tired and banged up, but not injured, right? But if I go out and I do that a few more times, I'm gonna wind up with an Achilles tendinopathy or something to that effect, right? So I didn't have an acute injury, but I set the stage for some changes in either my movement quality, my tissue density, or just, you know, I, I threw my acute to chronic work ratio out of whack um, and I'm just begging for an injury. So I think we have to understand that in the context of the bench press discussion is just because it doesn't hurt while an athlete is doing it doesn't mean that it uh, doesn't interfere with something um, you know, that might make them better movers long term. So if I'm, I'm being really honest, I don't really see a whole lot of potential for acute injuries with the bench press in, in baseball players. You don't see pec ruptures in colleges that do bench pressing their guys or anything like that. And frankly, most of them probably have plenty of motion passively to make it work, right? We know baseball players tend to be looser in the front of their shoulders. They have a lot of acquired external rotation, particularly in their throwing shoulder. Um, you know, they, they give them rise to being, give rise to them being able to get to those positions. They also typically don't get strong enough on it to move some serious weight, right? Um, you know, the baseball season is such that, you know, six to eight months out of the year um, when they're actively participating in their sport, it's hard to really go out there and, you know, crush 315 for a set of three um, on the bench press. Instead, you've got throwing, you've got hitting, you've got travel. So they might kind of go in and out of periods of, of heavier loading, but never is it what we see with power lifters, football players who have a lot more time to push heavier strength. Um, so while it's still a, an ego exercise to the nth degree, the fact that the bench press gets cycled in and out throughout the year likely means you're not going to see crazy weights being thrown around. So that you know basically tends to protect you a little bit in the acute standpoint. That said, the waters get a bit more muddied when we start to talk about chronic adaptations and the injury risk that's associated with it. And to examine that closely, I think we first have to consider what a few of the chronic adaptations are that we see in an overhead throwing population. There are quite a few, um, you know, certainly from head to toe, but the ones that I want to highlight are decreased scapular upward rotation and shoulder flexion. In short, the more baseball players throw, the more lat dominant they become, right? So when you get really gritty, toned up lats, they don't allow the scapula to upwardly rotate as much. 
they kind of limit your ability to flex the humerus because our, our lats are um, you know, extenders of the humerus. They're also internal rotators, so it becomes harder to get that clean external rotation we want at layback that you know, will protect our elbow. So the problems that we tend to see with overhead throwing athletes in terms of so- shoulder injuries is usually that the injuries uh, happen anteriorly and superiorly. So they happen at the front and the top of the shoulder. And one of the reasons for that is that if the scapula doesn't get up enough, the ball will sit forward and higher on the socket. So unless we have a bull strong, super functional rotator cuff, we're always gonna be dealing with a scenario where we're kinda hanging out on the top and the front of that joint. So why is this a problem with respect to bench pressing? Well, the issue with benching is that it reaffirms this lat dominance, right? I came from a powerlifting background. One of the first things they teach you when you're trying to move big weights is you've gotta have a really good platform, right? You need to have good bench press taken where the shoulder blades are tucked down and back on the bench, which really gives you a stable base from which you can press. And you really aren't getting more than 90 degrees of shoulder flexion at the top of the press, right? Especially if you're someone who benches with a big arch, like we often teach for um, you know, powerlifters who are trying to move bigger weights. So you're not really driving a lot of the mobility through that shoulder that we really need, right? So when we talk about scapular upward rotation, it's important not just to have a little bit of posterior tilt from our lower trapezius, but we also need some good serratus anterior function to wrap that shoulder blade around the rib cage. We also need a little bit of upper trap function because we need some elevation as part of that uh, upward rotation of the shoulder blade as we, as we go overhead. So now, bad positions happen in sports, in training, and in life. The problem though becomes that they become extra bad positions when they're heavily loaded. So we have to ask ourselves, if, is bench pressing going to exacerbate the negative adaptations we see in baseball players? And in, you know, is it gonna do so to the point that they could actually contribute to chronic injuries like lat strains, biceps tendinopathy, slap tears, rotator cuff irritations, you know, and even possibly things like stress fractures at the lower back from all the arching um, you, know, you see in the low back on top of the violent and extension and rotation that you see in the world of baseball. These are hard things you know, to, to look at. They're not controlled studies on this front, but it's not to stretch to say that you know, they do to some degree contribute undue risk um, in a chronic sense, right? You can infer and, and make these, these statements pretty boldly, I think, but accurately. Um, now, with that said, transfer, on the other hand, is really important to consider. Um, we accept that, that strength is a crucial foundation for power. It goes without saying there's some great research on that across various athletic disciplines. However, we probably need less maximal strength to optimize performance in throwing a five-ounce object than we would in a throwing sport like shot put where the implement is, is considerably heavier. And, and certainly we see bench press being used the most in the track and field throwing community. So we have to be very careful about um, you know, borrowing from a community that has a much heavier implement, you know, in a pattern that is markedly different than, than throwing a baseball in many ways. Um, what's interesting, in a landmark review on power development that came out in 2011, uh, Cormie et al. asserted that con- in consideration of movement pattern, load, and velocity specificity is essential when designing power training programs. In other words, just because you can do a good vertical jump doesn't mean you're going to be able to apply force rotationally really, really well. And I've talked about this a bunch in the past. It's you know verified in some of Graham Lehman's research in the Journal of Strength Edition Research. We know that just because you're a good sagittal plane beast 
doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be um, really high functioning in the rotational, uh, you know, and, and frontal planes. So I've seen a lot of, you know, basically high level throwers who have 18 inch vertical jumps and then throw 95. And it doesn't make sense until you realize that they've just learned to sequence themselves correctly, um, you know, in, in a pattern that combines the sagittal, the frontal and the transverse plane. So when we talk about bench pressing, it's probably locking us down and not really allowing us to benefit across the board. So the carryover is, is in my opinion, going to be lower, not just because the implement is lighter, but also because there's no element of rotation. So this discussion of movement pattern is particularly important as we talk about the potential transfer of bench pressing to throwing performance. Uh, the problem fundamentally with a conventional barbell bench press is that it doesn't really train scapular movement effectively. So when we do push-up variations, we do cable press variations, we use landmine press variations, um, especially if we integrate opposite arm reaching. So kind of this pistoning that creates thoracic rotation and the accompanying rib cage and scapular movement, all those shoulder blades are free to glide just as they do when we pitch, right? And when we bench though, we cue athletes to lock to shoulder blades down and back, create a really good foundation from which to press. So I often joke about how we're robbing Peter to pay Paul when it comes to shoulder health and function. Um, many athletes really lack adequate movement of the shoulder blade on the rib cage. So they wind up getting excessive movement of the ball on the socket to pick up the slack. And you know, this is not just where injuries occur, but it's also where individuals struggle with their mechanics, right? If your scapula doesn't upwardly rotate sufficiently, to get to ball release, you're going to be limited in your extension, right? Or you're going to have to find that motion elsewhere. Maybe you're going to have to get a little bit longer with your stride. There can be a lot of different ways that you can compensate for a lack of scapular upward rotation. Um, as CSP physical therapist Eric Schoenberg's written on our website in the past, he says, the scapula has to get up so that you can get down. In other words, if you want to go to that low glove side fastball that's so hard to execute, your scapula is going to go a long way around your rib cage to deliver your arm to in turn deliver the baseball. Beyond the initial phase of arm movement from your sides, if the arm's moving, the shoulder blade should be moving and vice versa. With a bench press, that just can't happen. You're locking the shoulder blades down underneath you and you're really just teaching the shoulder girdle to grind away on the front of the socket instead of really sharing the motion and the stress across multiple joints. And building on this discussion, you don't really get any element of thoracic rotation to deliver the rib cage, the scapula, and the arm. And you aren't going to improve how you interact with the ground much by bench pressing because let's face it, less than 1% of bench pressers ever really learn how to get the lower half contributing to the movement. I know some really accomplished throwers on this planet who love the idea of doing all their arm care stuff in the upright position because it feels like it just integrates the entire chain where they can create some ground forces and learn how those forces all translate to get them up uh, you know, into a good throwing position. And you just don't get that with a bench press. Now, taking it a step further and going down a potentially bigger rabbit hole, imagine the typical barbell bench press setup. You have an arched back, you've got your shoulder blades tucked down and back, you're actively pulling the bar down to you. That's a lot of extensor tone, right? You're firing up those lats, you're firing up those lumbar erectors, you know, you're really putting a lot of tone in those classic um, extension patterned muscles. And in a recent podcast we had with, uh, with Bill Hartman, who's a great physical therapist, we dealt into this concept of infrasternal angles and how some people are you know, genetically predisposed to a wide or a narrow positioning 
but those individuals may even create a little bit of an exacerbation of those positions with their training, right? So if we get a wide infrasternal angle person who's got a crazy background, you know, in lifting and, and really driving this heavy extensor tone, those are the athletes, you know, basically who may wind up actually losing rotation after these sessions, right? A lot of times you get a narrow infrasternal angle, they seem to hold their rotation a little bit better in spite of some of these patterns. So while there's a genetic predisposition to your appearance on this front, individuals with wide infrasternal angles are often your power lifters, your bodybuilders, your football players, maybe because you know that is a little bit of natural selection at work, um, but they typically don't have great rotational capacity. So one of the things that you could easily try is um, you know, for yourself to see how bench pressing influences you is go and do a lumbar locked rotation test. And you can Google it on, um, and along with my name or just search for it at ericcressy.com. But a lumbar locked rotation test is something I picked up um, from the folks at the Titleist Performance Institute, uh, Dr. Greg Rose, and it's, it's really just a way of measuring your thoracic rotation. Um, so what I would do is I would get into a position, measure your T-spine rotation. Let's say you, you actively have 80 degrees, and then you hop on and you do a set of heavy five bench presses. Go back and retest your thoracic spine rotation in both directions. If you get off the bench and you're at 60 degrees, that's probably not a great thing, right? So if you're gonna do that stuff, you have to put other things in your program they are gonna kinda of undo that. Now, by comparison, if you're someone who does that and loses your rotation, go and do something like a split stance, one-arm cable press from a high to low setup, do an alternate arm reach, really reach through that scapula, and then go back and test your thoracic rotation again. You'll not only hold it, chances are you might actually improve it because of the way that the, the thoracic rotation, the scapular movement, how you manipulate airflow on that, um, all the pressures you know, working within your torso um, you know, can impact your rotational capacity. You know, most cases, the, the acute recruitment of lats, pecs, quadratus lumborum will leave you with less rotation than you started with. And the problem is that when you do that for long enough, you'll often develop tissue extensibility changes and eventually cemented joints. Being completely honest, this is something I often see with pro baseball players who have been in division one programs with kind of heavy squat, Olympic lift, deadlift, bench press backgrounds. They're in weight rooms where maybe cables aren't accessible. It's a lot easier to have 15 power racks with barbells um, and maybe some dumbbells. There isn't a whole lot of rotation being trained under load in the weight room. They're not doing kettlebell arm bars and rotational rows and things along those lines. But if you do this stuff in heavy bilateral loading for rotational sport athletes for a long time, you won't just develop an acute loss of rotation, right? You're gonna develop tissue extensibility changes. You're actually gonna fundamentally lose length in some of these tissues. And over time, that can become a cemented joint. So when we see these guys do it for long uh, long enough, eventually their, their shoulder flexion falls off dramatically. Their ability to get into scapular posterior tilt just doesn't happen. So, you know, with that said, now that I've, I've peed in your Cheerios, you know, do I have alternatives to suggest? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I just touched on one. But first off, you have to have alternative pressing strategies. So you can do cable presses, landmine presses, push-up variations. Many of these can integrate rotation, opposite arm reaches, um, and various lower body positionings, right? You can do split stance with either the ipsilateral or the contralateral leg forward. These unique setups not only challenge the way that you transfer force, but they also have a favorable impact on your long-term fascial health. We touched on that 
um, the recent podcast with, with Bill Parisi. I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's already one of our most popular ones of all time. But we're really digging in on this fascial system and realizing that you know having compound multi-joint movements um, where they're long chain, varying loading, implementing pauses, all this stuff plays a crucial role in long-term fascial fitness. So we want to get out ahead of that by having some variability in the movements that we encounter in the weight room. Second, I'll often use kettlebell exercises in place of pressing exercises. So we can do an arm bar, we do kettlebell windmills either in standing or in half kneeling. We do Turkish get-up variations. These are things that you can plug in instead of your heavy bench pressing. You get greater movement capacity. You still get the benefits of, of loading on the athlete, you know, when we're talking about endocrine changes and things like that. Um, you know, you're definitely gonna get a lot more movement variability, and you're gonna integrate the lower half in a lot of those scapular upward rotation, shoulder flexion exercises and then I think third remember that upper body work with baseball players is rarely going to be really CNS intensive you know like you would see in a football player who's benching 400 right and as a result upper body work often shows up as a lower or medium stress day in my weekly plans so being willing to scale back on my allegiance to bench pressing has actually allowed me to redirect a lot of that stress to medicine ball work, sprinting and plyos, lower body lifting, training rotation harder on the proteus or versipulley. It's given us this opportunity to reallocate volume and stress and in turn the associated recovery capacity because we aren't so married to using one exercise that presumably could beat us up a lot. So in fact, with a lot of our more advanced athletes, we're doing considerably less upper body work and instead hitting extra medicine ball work, proteus work, versatility work, which gives us more in the strength, speed end of the, the force velocity curve in a rotational setting. The strength foundation is already there, right? We have guys that come back after a long season and they, they roll in and they deadlift you know, 405 for reps like it's nothing on the first day of the off season. So we realized that we're actually probably when that strength foundation is there, we're able to take a much more direct path to getting carryover to throwing performance when we start training some of these other drills. So that said, I do recognize there's still a lot of meatheads in the pitching world. Um, I'm one of them. You know, I still like to, to bench myself. So we do our best to meet our athletes halfway and appease the, uh, the bench press gods. Most of the time doing some dumbbell benching variations is fine. Um, I think they become even more useful when they're done in a one arm at a time or alternating stand uh, setting. I also like the idea of incorporating like a lower body bridge off a bench or off the ground um, to actually add a little bit more of a core control element. Um, but doing one arm at a time, you're going to get a little bit more thoracic rotation. You're getting a little bit more scapular movement, and you're also going to get some anti-rotation core benefits. Um, you know, that said, if you feel like you need to do traditional benching, just keep the volume in check and be sure to recognize that your ego probably isn't doing much for your success on the mound as there are other training initiatives with much better returns on investment. Um, remember that pitchers have loads of competing demands. They have to do throwing, mobility work, soft tissue work, fielding practice, you know, sprint and agility training. So what you do in the weight room has to be not only highly effective to justify its inclusion, but it also has to be something that's safe both acutely and chronically. Um, and I just struggle to consider bench pressing a highly effective intervention for pitchers. Um, we spend a lot of time each offseason trying to restore movement quality in our baseball players you know, because the best movers are the ones that stay on the field. Um, to that end, be careful sacrificing movement quality to chase strength games 
that might not deliver any incremental benefit in the first place, especially when there are countless viable, effective alternatives available to you. Just my two cents, by all means, dabble in them if it's something you feel like you absolutely need to do, but I do feel like uh, there are much, much better ways to attack things, and we've certainly found that that's been the case in all of our programs that we've written at Cressy Sports Performance. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.